Hey everyone, it's Hannah. In this episode, I will continue reading from Ed Gooding's book. I do want to let you know that this is going to be the second to last episode of this little mini-series. I hope you enjoy the stories, and if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. that you will never find a law enforcement officer that does not loathe domestic problems. I don't care how they end up, we lose. At best, the couple gets together and blames us for interfering, and at worst, somebody ends up dead. Surely Ruth Beerswell was missing, and her husband John was suspected of foul play. I talked with Hugo Clanner, sheriff of Gillespie County, and he related the known facts he had at this point. The Bear Sheriff's Office in San Antonio had received a call from a lady who said that Shirley Ruth Beerswell had left a small baby with her while she went shopping. That had been a week before, and Shirley Ruth had not returned for the child. They contacted the infant's father, John Beerswell, and he went to San Antonio and retrieved his son. I questioned Beerswell later. He said that about a week after he had returned from San Antonio with his son, He was at work at his father's butane company when he saw Shirley Ruth and a man drive by, going north on Highway 290. He followed them, and when they stopped, he confronted his wife, wanting to know why she had left their son in San Antonio and where she had been for a week. A fight ensued between Beerswell and his wife's boyfriend, and the sheriff was called to separate them. The sheriff had run a check on the boyfriend and found that he was wanted in San Antonio on some outstanding traffic warrants. He locked him up until officers from San Antonio could come get him. There was no charge the sheriff could file on Shirley Ruth, so he released her. The last time anyone saw Shirley Ruth Beerswell was when she and her husband had left the jail. The Beerswells lived in Fredericksburg, and I made several trips to that beautiful little city to talk with John. He claimed that after leaving the jail, he and Shirley Ruth had a tremendous fight. He had dropped his wife out on the highway at a rest stop and hadn't seen her since. I put out a missing persons all points bulletin on Shirley Ruth and continued questioning Beerswell. He still denied he had harmed his wife in any manner. I knew that Beerswell had done something with his wife, but knowing and proving are two different things. About a week later, I again went to Fredericksburg to question Beerswell. I was told that he had left word with his mother and other members of his family that he had taken a job with an oil company and had gone to South America to work. I knew they were lying, but again, I couldn't prove it. I was stuck with no suspect and an uncleared murder case. Shirley Ruth's father, a Mr. Shipman, lived in Ingram, Texas, just outside of Kerrville. I had talked with him on several occasions regarding his missing daughter. He suspected Beerswell had done something to her and urged me to keep trying. I didn't need urging. My batting average had not been up to par in Kerrville since moving from Houston, and the absolute last thing in the world I wanted was another unsolved murder. Mr. Shipman showed me his daughter's hunting rifle and the knife she used to skin deer. He told me he had taught her to hunt and she was good at it. Shirley Ruth was a little wild, but had respect for other people. Mr. Shipman couldn't see how she would let anyone get the better of her in a fight, even though Beerswell was much larger than she was. Without breaks, no murder case, or any case for that matter, would ever be solved. Mine came about three weeks after Beerswell had supposedly gone to South America. 
I got word that his father had died and the family would be having a funeral in Harper, Texas. I attended the funeral and saw Beerswell there with his brother-in-law and several other family members. I waited until after the funeral and talked with some in attendance. They said John had been in West Texas with his sister and brother-in-law working on an oil rig. He had only missed South America by a few thousand miles. I waited until the family had gathered after the funeral and I approached them and asked to speak with John Beerswell. His mother came to the door and verbally lit into me like a tiger. She called me everything but a gentleman. Finally, Beerswell came to the door with his brother-in-law and we walked out in the yard. All the while, Beerswell's mother was still raising Cain, so he and I got in my car. Beerswell wanted his brother-in-law with him, so he went along with us as we drove away from the house. I talked for about an hour with Beerswell without success. He wouldn't admit to anything. He asked if there was any reason he couldn't return to West Texas with his brother-in-law. I looked him straight in the eye and I told him I knew he had harmed his wife in some way. I put my finger on his chest and told him he could go anywhere he wished, but he had better remember one thing. I was a Texas Ranger, and I was going to find his wife some day. When I did, he would be walking down some street, feel someone tap on his shoulder, and it would be me. He could bet the bank that I was not going to give up until I exhausted every effort to nail him. Then I took him and his brother-in-law back to his mother's house, and I left. The next day, Gillespie County Deputy Sheriff Lawrence Burr called me and said John Beerswell was in his office and wanted to talk to me. I immediately left for Fredericksburg. Beerswell admitted I was right. He and Shirley Ruth had gotten in a fight at home and it had turned physical. He had knocked her down and she had hit her head on the baseboard of the wall. At first he thought she was just knocked out, but when he saw blood running out on the carpet, he knew it was much worse. Shirley Ruth was dead. He picked her body up, carried her out in the backyard, and buried her in a chicken coop. The coop had a Spanish tile floor, which he removed. He dug a hole and put his wife in it. Several officers joined me at the chicken coop, and we quickly found the spot where Beerswell had buried his wife. The officers began to dig, but soon a god-awful stench came from the hole. We had found Shirley Ruth. Suddenly, I was alone in the makeshift grave. Trust me, a decomposed body has a smell like no other on the face of the earth. I have been around more than my share of bodies like this, and I have learned a secret for handling the gut-wrenching smell. You take a cigar and cut it in half so that the end of the cigar is near your nose. Then you light it and put it between your teeth in the middle of your mouth. That kills any smell you can imagine. It wasn't long before we uncovered the body along with several pieces of clothing, a twenty-two caliber rifle, and an old blanket. I called the Justice of the Peace. After his inquest, he ordered an autopsy. I let the ambulance crew remove the body and load it in the ambulance, and then I followed them to San Antonio. I was determined to make sure this case went right. I had two murder cases, one lost in a preliminary hearing and the other unsolved. I was 0 for 2. The autopsy revealed that Shirley Ruth had died of a massive hemorrhage to the frontal lobe of her brain. This is common with a heavy blow to the back of the head. There was a four-inch gash in the back of her head, and all of this supported Beerswell's story that he had knocked his wife down and her head hit the baseboard of the wall. The body was in such an advanced state of deterioration that it was impossible to determine if she had been shot. Why Beerswell buried the twenty-two rifle with her body, we never determined, and he never answered. Maybe he did shoot her, I don't know, but he was smart not to admit it. If he had, that would have taken preference over the accidental death from her head hitting the wall when he knocked her out. I filed murder charges on Beerswell, and he was denied bond. 
While awaiting trial, the district attorney and I had an occasion to be in Fredericksburg one day. When we walked into the sheriff's office, there sat Beerswell at a domino table playing dominoes with a deputy sheriff. The district attorney and I looked at one another. After a stunned few moments, we walked back a few paces and the DA said to me in a low voice, Am I seeing things? Wasn't that Beerswell sitting there playing dominoes with the deputy? Yes. Beerswell was a local boy who had known the deputy most, if not all of his life. The deputy trusted Beerswell. Beerswell was convicted of murdering his wife and received a 12-year sentence. As I said, he was a local boy. Rape cases usually turn out bad, not only for the victim, but also for the lawman. Understandably, the victim doesn't want something as brutal and dehumanizing as being raped paraded before the whole world. All too often, the rapist gets away with his crime because his victim just keeps quiet or refuses to cooperate with law officers. However, I had an attempted rape case in Bell County that turned out well because the girls involved were not intimidated and refused to let this refugee from human decency escape justice. Three girls walked into the sheriff's office in Belton and lodged a complaint against a man who had attempted to rape them. They didn't know his name, but they gave an excellent physical description, one that was none too pretty. They described him as skinny, with long oily hair, dirty yellow crooked teeth, and breath so bad that it would have stopped a truck. According to them, he would be easy to find because he had to be the ugliest man on the face of the earth. The local newspaper ran an article on the attempted rapes. An informant who worked in a clinic in Temple contacted Wade Oldman, a deputy in the Bell County Sheriff's Office. The informant gave Wayne the name of a man who he thought met the description of our suspect, Jonathan Rivers. Wayne called me and asked for my assistance. We ran a check on Rivers and found a mugshot of him in the DPS files in Austin. After securing a copy of the photograph, Wayne called the girls and asked if they would please come by and look at a picture lineup. When they arrived, we took them one at a time into a room and gave them the six pictures. One was a picture of Jonathan Rivers, and the other five were of men of similar physical characteristics and dress. With no hesitation, each one of the girls instantly picked out Rivers. According to Rivers' rap sheet, he lived in Austin in a mobile home owned by his mother. Wayne and I headed for Austin and straight to the address. Just as we were turning into the driveway of the suspect's home, we met a car coming out. We stopped the car and asked the driver for identification. He wasn't our man, but he said Jonathan Rivers was his younger brother and was at his mother's. We went to the home, knocked on the door, and explained to Mrs. Rivers, who answered the door, why we were there, and asked for permission to search her house. After a few choice, unprintable words, she declined our request. I then presented her with the search warrant we had obtained before coming to her house. She was none too happy as we began looking around. If you have ever been in a single-wide mobile home, you know there are very few places to hide. Wayne and I searched thoroughly, but no rivers was to be found. Double-checking ourselves, we went through the mobile home again with the same results. I went outside and searched through some low brush. Still, no rivers. There was no underpinning, so I knew he wasn't under the house. Rivers' brother said that Rivers had been there minutes before and there was no place to hide. This was turning into a real mystery. 
Of course, Mrs. Rivers, being a mother, was protesting the innocence of her dear little boy to the high heavens. But she was carrying it a bit far with her filthy mouth. I hated to tell her, but she wasn't impressing Wayne and me. We had both been down that road many times before. The brother we met earlier had turned around and come back to his mother's house. After much effort, he was able to calm his mother down from a scream to a simple yell. Again, he told me that when he left the house just before we arrived, his brother had been sitting on the living room couch. While the brother and I talked, Wayne continued to search. Suddenly, I heard Wayne yell, Come out of there! I ran to the back bedroom, entering just in time to see Wayne dragging Rivers by the neck, literally out of the wall. What we had missed earlier was a water heater compartment whose door was simply a panel that could be removed. Rivers had squeezed into the space between the water heater and the wall and then pulled the panel closed behind him. Rivers didn't bother denying his attempted rape of the three girls. He said that he had driven his older brother, not the one we had just met, who was in the army back to Fort Hood. After dropping him off, Rivers was heading back home when he came upon the girls. From here on, his story perfectly matched that of the girls. On the night of the rape, the three girls had gone to the movies in Colleen and were driving home. A car came up beside them and forced them off the road. The driver of the car jumped out, ran up to the girl's car, and grabbed the driver before any of the stunned girls could react. He slid under the steering wheel and pushed the driver to the passenger side of the front seat. He then forced the other two in the back seat. Then he drove off. The driver had said in her statement that the rapist stank so bad and was so ugly she almost threw up just looking at him and thinking about what awaited her. She started crying and Rivers didn't like that, so he made the driver and one of the other girls in the back seat switch places. When she was in the back seat, the girl who now had to go to the front had spotted a long neck beer bottle on the floorboard. Rivers meant to fondle the girl now in the front and he ordered her to turn so that she was almost facing him. Doing as she was ordered, the girl turned towards Rivers. What he didn't know was that she could see the third girl, behind Rivers, with the beer bottle in her hand. Before Rivers could even think about fondling anyone, the girl swung with all her might and smashed him on the back of the head. Thankfully, Rivers had been so preoccupied with what he intended to do, he wasn't driving very fast. The force of the blow momentarily knocked Rivers unconscious, and he ran the car into a ditch. Even before the car stopped moving, all three girls opened their respective doors, jumped out of the car, and hit the ground running. They climbed through the fence and hid in some nearby brush. After several minutes, Rivers regained consciousness. He started the car, backed out of the ditch, turned around, and headed slowly along the roadside. All the time, he was yelling at the top of his voice for the girls to come on out. He shouted that if they didn't, he would kill them when he finally found them. The girls just hunkered down and waited until he finally gave up and drove off. Of course, the girls had no way of knowing whether Rivers was truly gone or not. Every time a car had come by, they were afraid their assailant was back. We've all heard the old saying, a watched pot never boils. Those girls thought the sun was never going to rise, but of course it finally did. As soon as there was enough daylight to see, they walked to a nearby house and told the startled man who answered the door what had happened to them. The man drove them to the police station where they called their parents who came immediately. The girls' parents were almost beside themselves with relief. They had been to every movie house, teen hangout, and house frantically looking for their daughters. As for the girls, they weren't in nearly as bad shape as Rivers. That beer bottle had left him with a monster headache. The girls were no worse for wear except for one, who had a skin knee and backside from where she had hit the gravel road when she jumped out of the car. I transported Jonathan Rivers to the Bell County Jail where he made bond. Rather, his mother had made bond for him. 
Each of the girls made as good a witness as I have seen on the stand. They were absolutely rock solid, and Rivers received a long prison sentence for the attempted rape. The girls were right about one thing. Jonathan Rivers was the ugliest man I ever saw. Even after his lawyer dressed him up for the court appearance, he looked like he had been beaten half to death with an ugly stick.